We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy us all. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just wanna say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Welcome to the Sword Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 2014's Black Coal Thin Ice, written and directed by Diao Yinan. Here's a clip.行了。跑得多快啊。That was a clip from Black Coal, Thin Ice, uh, 2014 Chinese film directed by Diao Yinan and written by Diao Yinan. Uh, joining me as always to talk about this, we'll see if he's as confused as I am about some of the plot details, is Ricky D. What's up, Patrick? I'm, I'm, I'm good on the names. There's not too many characters we need to keep track of, although two of the actors both have the same last name, Wang. That makes it easy. Um... <laughs> <laughs> also joining us, uh, the chooser of this fine film is Simon Howell. Oh, hi. Simon, I think the first question we need to ask is, uh, why Black Coal Thin Ice? So, um, Ricky's seen a lot of movies. I don't know if y'all know this at home about Ricky, but sometimes it's hard to stump Ricky. And I thought, okay, this week, because we, you know, we take turns picking films, I wanted to go a little bit more obscure, a little bit more niche. And uh, pick something that I, I I know wouldn't have come up on normal rotation. And uh, I saw this film on Shutter for the first time about uh, I want to say six or eight months ago. I believe it is no longer on Shutter in Canada, so you will need to look elsewhere to find it. Um, but uh, I think it's in line with a lot of other stuff that we've covered. But I think also being a Chinese production, a contemporary Chinese production, um, which is something we've never never talked about. I don't think. Um, yes, we I think have. it has. Well, not recently. Oh, no. Not not with Patrick. Uh, what was the last Chinese film we would have covered? 
maybe a touch of sin i'm not sure uh oh that's a good movie that's an amazing movie i was hoping oh. you would pick that movie well we can st- we could do ash's purest white uh his his uh, right. the film he made after that which is also fucking great just to cut in really quick the frustrating thing about the podcast is right now i want to record two episodes per week because every time you choose a movie i want to choose a film that will match your pick so i was mm. thinking of touch of sin for the movie that i would choose that would match this or wild goose lake which i actually prefer which is from the same director of this movie right so i've seen i I, i've seen wild goose lake i actually excitedly watched wild goose lake after seeing this film and i didn't like it quite as much even though i think it's maybe stylistically a little bit more fun um i think what i really love about this movie and now i've seen i've seen it twice now so i'm like pretty sure about this i love its classic neo-noir detective story plot um in this sort of, I guess, to us, alien setting that reveals, um, you know, some some interesting new angles. Um, but I, I love that the movie is actually quite plotty and dense with uh, with twists and um, and with detail that you really need to be paying careful attention to to keep track of. Um, you know, a, a lot of the time when you get sort of um, international takes on Amer on classically British or American film tropes you get kind of a less less plotty, more experimental versions of those things. And there are some experimental aspects to this movie, but I actually still think it's a very traditional, uh, you, you might even say classicist, uh, neo-noir, but with some inter- with Chinese characteristics, I guess you could say, in the same way that you say, you know, capitalism with Chinese characteristics is their current economic system. This is a neo-noir with Chinese characteristics, and I think that's really interesting. Big time, big time. I think the only thing it doesn't have that a classic film noir would have is the witty dialogue, the the one liners, mm-hmm. the banter. Yeah, this, this movie the, is the, very quiet. Yeah, Although it's, new noirs it's, don't really have that as much. Yeah, either. no. Th- this is um, it, this movie has it has the um, it has the cynical worldview, the deeply cynical worldview, and like black heartedness of classic noir but it doesn't have the um it doesn't have a uh, smirky humor or any kind of really there's not a whole lot of levity here and there's not a lot of relief from the from the blackness which i think mm-hmm. is an, one thing that does keep it uh keep it distinct there are a few scenes which we'll get to later because one of them is one of my favorite scenes in the movie but i totally agree i think i think i need to see this movie for a second time because I, I I think like I do like this movie like I think it's a really good movie I'm just not crazy about it like I gave mm-hmm. off an impression that I hated the movie and Simon wanted to cancel the show which is not accurate it's not true <laughs> I I think this is a really well made movie it just for whatever reason this, this specific director there's something about his movies that I just don't fully engage in like i find myself drifting off and daydreaming and i i actually phoned simon before watching the movie and i asked you simon I'm like what kind of movie is this i want to be, be sure that i'm mentally prepared you know mm-hmm. I'm, I'm awake i got my cup of coffee i understand it's not gonna have much dialogue and it's gonna be slow paced but i do think it's a perfect example of a modern film noir i love the menacing cinematography I love the portrayal of this urban life in a different country that I've never been to. So it's kind of foreign, foreign, but yet kind of familiar. Um, I love the moral decay. I love the choice of the protagonist, a drunk, disgraced ex-cop plagued by these memories of not being able to solve a murder case 
back in 1999. And now he finally has a chance to make things right and solve the case, but at a personal cost. I love the femme fatale figure who is not really a traditional femme fatale, but she still is a femme fatale because <laughs> I was going to bring that up too. Yeah. Though. Cause she romances multiple men and she harbors dark secrets. And can we spoil the movie? At this no, not, no, let's definitely really? not spoil the movie. But, but I do think like the actual structure, the script um, and like even the characters, I think it, I think you're right. I think it resembles a classic film noir. It just doesn't have much dialogue. This is no double identity, like a Billy, Billy Wilder film where you're mm-hmm. going to be able to recite the lines of every single scene because they're just so memorable. And I mean, noir has changed over the years. Like there's, there's no question that that style of, of writing is gone from movies, period. You're never going to see the Billy Wilder double indemnity dialogue anymore, or even um, some of those, you know, Bogart ones. Right. Whether it's an English or Mandarin or whatever. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the big sleep is never going to happen again. LA Confidential was close because those two are fairly related but they still do don't la confidential doesn't have the same kind of dialogue it's the big sleep like that kind of dialogue is gone um i i miss it deeply (laughs) but (laughs) it was a different style of filmmaking this is yeah you could not get though more of a like classical template for a noir out of this and then just sort of classic character types uh the the main character oh god do i want to attempt butchering go for it here (laughs) um Zhang Zili, I think, is his name, I hope. Um, Yeah, Detective Zhang, they call him at the start. Yeah. So, yeah, he's clearly, like, not a great dude either. No. Right off the bat, just not a... You don't know whether to root for this guy or not. And that was one thing that Classic Noir's, the one-liners actually helped with. The wisecracks made at least those kind of bums be likable. Yeah, it, Fred, soften, it softens the characters. Fred McMurray is sleazy in Double Indemnity, but you like him because he's super witty. Um, that doesn't that is the case here. Like this guy's a sleazy cop <laughs> and sleazy in his personal life, and so you don't really know whether to like him or not. But he is interesting. He's very uh, fascinating to watch, and seeing his him sort of process all the events that are happening uh, is is what makes this movie for me. The um, another thing, a major, major aspect that differentiates this from classic noir is something you'll notice about half an hour into the movie, which is that there is almost no score. Um, there is no. there is one. I mean, there's a few very notable uh, music drops, shall we say, and we can talk about some of those later. Um, and there is there there are a couple of scenes. There's one scene with uh, with accordion music and another with a classical score. I don't know whether they're original or commissioned. Uh, I suspect um, I suspect just uh, their pre-existing music. Um, but that's another thing. Like, I mean, the original, the, the classic noirs are slathered in music mm-hmm. and um, not having that really makes the whole thing feel a lot more austere. Yeah. It makes it feel like it's happening. We should probably explain to people since I doubt too many people have seen this movie, um, <laughs> which is one of the reasons why you picked it, what the plot is. Maybe Simon, you want to actually. Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll give, I'll give the basic non-spoilery pr- premise. The film opens in 1999 uh, and the cops are, uh, are on a murder case. Uh, the case goes South uh, very badly and is unsolved. It starts with the, um, discovery of some body parts in coal shipments all around the around the province or around the neighboring provinces uh and yeah go, goes poorly some cops die it's a very dumb 
very poor um what's the word i'm looking for firearms training in that particular <laughs> province uh might need some tightening for local right. police um <laughs> I actually, I had the thought I, that I wondered if they set the film in 1999 and 2004 because it it, would, it gave them an easier time with potential censor problems. Um, because like, oh, like you can show that stuff's really, like really super fucked up in this province, but it's fine because it was 15 years ago mm-hmm. um, and it's better now. I don't know. Anyway, just idle speculation on my part. Yeah, um, I, think, I think you're onto something though. I think it has something to do uh, with them. Because they really do not. Statement. It's it is not a uh, it's not a nice seeming part of the country. Anyway, no, but, but you forgot it, to mention the the big huge hook here is that because the body parts are found in different areas of this province, they don't understand how one killer could, could be covering that much ground. Yes, yeah, it could be covering that much ground. So then they start speculating that maybe there's a copy a copycat murderer, or maybe there's more than one person doing the killing, and that's what makes the case hard to solve. Right. So anyway, the the, the bulk of the film takes place five years later with this uh, disgraced ex detective who's now working as a security guard, but is still quite gropy, it seems, um, and uh, getting getting a chance to potentially finally crack this case, memories of murder style, um, despite no longer being a cop when. Uh, New new bodies start to show up that have a connection uh, to the to the widow of the original victim, uh, who is our aforementioned uh, femme fatale slash not femme fatale. You know, you um, casually dropped in the title "Memories Without Murder," like one of my favorite memories movies of murder. Of all time. Yeah. So, memories of murder, one of my favorite movies of all time. And when this movie started, I could not help but think of that movie and Zodiac yeah. by David Fincher, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Those two movies are incredible, and I think. I might be to blame. Like I have to blame myself for not enjoying this movie as much as I maybe could have and should have, because I just right away thought it would be on that level. Like Mm -hmm. the opening I thought was a great way to open up a film. And I just expected a completely different movie more in the line of David Fincher's Zodiac. Cause this movie is very slow paced. There's little action. It's not very graphic. And what's funny, Simon is I, you were telling me earlier off air about the scenes that were cut for the theatrical release in China. And I think the two scenes that they cut are actually the two best scenes in the movie or two very crucial, key, important mm-hmm. scenes in the movie. Um, so I was like, I was kind of confused. I want to know how an audience in China would have received the film, given the fact that a good portion of the great scenes in the movie were actually cut out. But I don't know. I, I like, again, I do think this movie is well worth the watch. I think some people will love it a lot more than me. Clearly you do. Um, I think what really kept me watching apart from the performance from the main actor, Zhang, the, well, the character Zhang, I think that's how you pronounce his name, the detective is the look of the film. And much mm-hmm. like his last film, this film looks gorgeous. It's, it's got incredible, great cinematography and he's a very patient filmmaker the way he moves his camera or doesn't move his camera there's a lot of static shots throughout this film including the 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 shootout which you sort of like teased earlier on um there is a shootout and he decides to use a static shot like a far static shot of Mm -hmm. several men inside a barbershop so there is something about him as a director that i do that frustrates me, and yet uh, I absolutely love the way he directs his movies. Mm. And, and I'll give you an example. I was, t- I was talking to you again off air earlier this morning about this. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about all the amazing camera shots and scenes uh, later in the podcast, but I just want to get this one shot out of the way, just just as an example of how he can frustrate me. 
So about 17, 18 minutes into the movie, we the film leaps forward in time. So it goes from 1999 to 2004. And I love the transition because mm. the two detectives are driving in the car and then it cuts to the point of view of them in the car. So you see the road only now it's snowing and then the, the title drops down 2004. So you understand that there's a passage of time. I was like, wow, that's a great transition. So it keeps the point of view of the car, supposedly the car driving. The car goes through a tunnel. And then when it com comes out of the tunnel, we see on the side of the road, there's a man stranded and he's sitting or like sitting sitting on the road by his like motorcycle, right? And then we're still in the point of view of the car, or at least we think it's the car. And the camera like spins around as if again it's the car doing a U-turn, and then it returns to the to to the, the the part of the road where the guy's stranded on the side of the road. And then we hear the engine stop and the camera shakes as if again to be the point of view of the car. But then we see the motorcycle come into frame. Yeah, the other motorcycle. And I'm like, what? Like, so you gave us this like fancy shot, which is supposed to be the point of view of the motorcycle. And you're supposed to trick us because you have that, that passage, of t passage of time. But then you like, but it's not really the point of view of the shot because the, the, the motorcycle like drives into the shot. And, and what frustrates me so much is that he actually shakes the camera when the guy turns off the engine. So if he turns off the engine, then why does the motorcycle <laughs> drive into the frame like five, ten seconds later? And I know it sounds like I'm nitpicking, but I'm not because he does this in every single one of his movies where he tries to get super fancy with the cinematography mm -hmm. and, and the camera movement. And it's 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 jarring. It takes me out of the picture. And I find it's unnecessary and he's trying to be too clever for the sake of being clever. I do think most of his being clever, like that, that is definitely the worst offender in the movie in terms of like trying to do fancy shit just because you can. I think most of, most of his style in the movie is pretty low key. Um, but yeah, that, that scene does stand out for that reason. Dude, I watched it again this morning before recording the podcast. I was like, if I'm going to bitch about this, I want to watch it again just to make sure I'm right. <laughs> sure, yeah, 17 exactly right. minutes yeah. into the movie, go watch it again. It's the stupidest camera shot ever. Now, that's one of those things where they could have used you on set, Rick, to, to actually say something about that. Like that, I, I actually like that shot up until that moment because yeah, it's a great too. way to show the passage of time. And exactly. what impressed me and what I was looking for is when the car or the camera turns around, the because they're passing through a bridge, right? Or yeah, a tunnel, tunnel, I mean. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when he turns around, it is snowing behind him, whereas it wasn't, right? So the shot goes exactly. from no snow to snow, and then when he turns around, it is snowing behind him. So it, it works seamlessly up until that point. Where so close. Cycle drives, and I know. <laughs> but, but, the, but there's another great shot, once again, going back to the barbershop. So basically, two detectives follow a bunch of dudes into a barbershop and a few more cops, and there's sort of like a standoff. And one of the, the cops is the main character, Zhang. And so we have this far shot. It's a static shot of the barbershop. And it's this messy gun. Um, it's this messy shootout, basically. Like, like the, 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 I guess the criminals, they whip out a gun and they shoot, uh, I guess, two of the officers. I'm kind of confused as who's who in the scene. But at, at one point, the, uh, the pr protagonist of this movie, the, the detective who we follow, he pulls out his gun, but it's really sloppy. Like, you know, he's yeah. kind of like he's caught off guard. He's in shock and he's trying to get his 
his gun out of his holster before the other guy shoots him. And, and he's mid smoke also. Yeah. And lucky for him, he actually gets his gun out just in time and shoots the man dead on the floor. But I just love the way he, he films that scene because he doesn't try to make it all fancy. It's not quick cuts and lots of camera shots and different camera angles. And it's not action packed. And it's just it is what it should be, because I'm pretty sure that's how it would be in real life. It would be sloppy. It's a bunch mm -hmm. of guys who are afraid, who are in shock, who are trying to get out of this tricky situation, a deadly situation. And he just, you know, he's lucky. He just happens to get his gun out at the very moment right before the dude shoots him. He he ends up shooting that guy. So I love how he 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 uses that long shot, but it's a static shot, and it's it feels a bit more realistic. Yeah, and there's another moment in that scene that you kind of skipped over that I think is really important in terms of like showcasing the evolution of style. Where like in a, in an old noir, if you had that that moment where the gun falls out of the guy's jacket you'd have like orchestral sting orchestral sting and then like a couple of cuts and then like a scramble for the gun and then like you know whatever but 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 i i still think the way he stages it is like a classic noir because in, back in the classic noirs they didn't do like kind of like michael bay trickery where it's like really fast action-packed like uh whatever like a shootout it's more like a guy pulls a gun you hear a sound effect and then someone falls on the floor, pretends like he yeah. gets shot, right? The way they do it is a bit more realistic than the film noirs from the 40s and 50s, but it still has that, that uh, I don't know, it's still stage similar. Yeah, well, the, the, the blocking is kind of is kind of similar, mm -hmm. but uh, I just I just love the way like that the gun just plops to the floor and everyone just sits there for a second. And then the the only person who's got the presence of mind to reach for it also happens to be one of the criminals and just the I love how it is actually very violent, but it happens so quickly. Uh, and that's kind of a thing with him is like, he doesn't go for graphic violence very often and it tends to be very fleeting. It's jarring for sure. And and when you have a far shot, you're not getting a close up of the guy's brain splattering on, on the, the, the concrete, for example, he's yeah. using a far shot, but there's another scene by the way, which maybe might be my second favorite scene in the film. But they go to, I'm not sure where they go. They go to interrogate this lady. And uh, there's someone in the background crying. And so they're like, you know, let's step outside and let's continue this interrogation outside, right? So they step outside. And in the middle of the hallway, there's this freaking horse. For like no reason. There's like a horse standing in the middle of the hallway. And it becomes like this this big thing where they're like, oh my God, why is this horse here? Who left the horse? Whose horse is this? Where's the person that owns the horse? Did anyone feed the horse? And this is like in the middle of the interrogation scene. But I love that because it, it like the way I'm explaining it, it sounds goofy, but it's not in the film. It's just something that happens because that's how life is. Like you might be a detective investigating the case and interrogating someone but something like that can happen there's still people around you there's still life happening things happening so i like how he i don't just like the movie has this thing where it feels like it's just an a, a, just another day in in this in the life of this detective and you know just things like this happen you know one of the things uh, i think when you're doing a detective movie and this is less of a procedural than it is of just a you know a story about characters like i, I think that people should know that this isn't seven where obsessing over the case is the main point of all of this there are lots of plot twists and turns but it doesn't seem like that was the point of the movie no. it does start out seeming like it's going to be a procedural it, and then it, it decides does. not to do that yeah it seems like it's going to be a, a pretty standard like serial killer movie um 
you know, with the cut up body parts and everything. But things like the horse in there, I like when they throw that into in detective movies because you never know what clues are important and what is not as a detective, right? You find lots of evidence of things, but you don't know what actually relates to the case. And I think when you're making a movie like this where there is a mystery, you throw things at the audience that some of it doesn't necessarily add up. We don't necessarily know what's important and what's not. The horse scene is a great example, but it also shows you maybe a flavor of the life, which is what yeah. this movie gives you a good, I, I think that's what I've like, aside from the, the lead performance, which we'll get into later, like the second most thing, the thing that I value about this movie is just sort of the look at the life of these people. Yeah. There's, there's so many details in the, I guess like like just like banal details that are just different from from Western life that are just that are interesting to see. Like early in the film, when he has this uh, sordid rendezvous with his ex-wife and she's like, we're divorced. And she hands him like his divorce, his divorce passport. Yeah, it's like a passport. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, like which I think document, <laughs> I, I think what probably what it is, it's I have I haven't looked this up, but I think it's probably like a, a, a general like identifying document. That just happens to contain like marital status, and it's just like happens to show that it's that it's like she's gotten it updated to say it's that they're divorced now. Either uh, that or divorce is such a, like a legal thing that they're required to have this very official looking document. I don't know if I could. Re- yeah, I, but I, I like Chinese, I like the I way it known. <laughs> it looks like she's giving him a passport to divorce, which I did like, um, and just other stuff that's just that's just neat. Like um, the, the the scene of all the de- of I think it's all the detectives, which in in a in an American film, they'd actually be going to get Chinese food, but they're in China. So what are they doing? They're all sharing a watermelon. Uh, just stuff like that. It's just, it's just interesting. It's neat. It adds, it, it literally, it adds flavor. Yeah. That was like, they were, they were at one of the factories, weren't they? And they were interviewing or they were interviewing like the, the, the guys who were responsible for the trucks that were being sent out all yes, over the place yeah. to the way station or something like that. Yeah. And everybody's just sitting around eating giant chunks of watermelon, <laughs> which is great. That's what detectives do, right? When they're on the case, they eat while trying to solve the case. Like these dudes are human; they need to eat. So, yeah. like, but it's no, the no, it's, watermelon. It's, the it's watermelon it's doesn't. Just, uh, seem, it, it just doesn't fit with what I would have thought, right? Yeah, it's it, it's it's just yeah, it's 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 a different version of the same trope. It's neat, right? But if it was an American film, it would be like donuts and coffee. Yeah, exactly. Example. Right, but but that's what I like about the the director. Like, I do like how. He wants viewers to be interested in the film's characters, situations, as much as the actual plot of the film. And I feel like, you know, like you mentioned Seven. So in a movie like Seven, you would cut to a dinner scene with Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman's character. And who played the wife? Was it Gwyneth Paltrow? Yeah. Right. So you would have those three characters in a dinner scene at home, right? Very basic, traditional, like North American sort of like um, whatever, kind of like the typical thing you would see in an American film. But in this movie, the stuff we get is completely, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's, it's unusual. It's, it's new. It's refreshing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Refreshing is the word I would use. Yeah. And it's just like a, a lot of the locale, like the, the locales where the film spends a lot of its time, have a have a slightly novel quality as well, like the skating rink, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, there's a few key scenes in a dance hall. Um, the even even the work environment, and also just generally the way people, um, all the scenes of people learning about oh, there's a case, oh, there's cops, 
uh oh like this is ha- like the, the general the, the denizens and the workers they, they 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 have a very different relationship to policing than we do we never it, see the police station which is odd in a, in a police movie i don't think that there's a single scene that takes place in the police station is there in this station i don't think so i don't think no. so either yeah which is all weird the, all Usually the interrogations this... are in the car yeah or at the or at the residence yeah yeah that is all and it, it also creates an interesting um d- dilemma because in the in the, for the majority of the film the, the the main character isn't a cop so whenever they're they have a, an interrogation scene he's mostly not invited <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. Which is kind of funny. He sits in another car by himself, and then he gets told what was said during the interrogation. <laughs> and he's a, I think he's a security consultant, isn't that what he is right now? Like currently, he, uh, he, he yeah, he's like he's he was a security guard or something. I don't know. Something um, like but the, the there's one other aspect of this movie that is actually a, a like a big part of the movie that we haven't touched on yet, and I think it's important to just mention before we go to break. Which is that like another aspect of this movie that is that it has in common with neo noir with uh, original noirs is that um, often in those movies uh, like patriarchal control and you know g- general uh, manipulation of and brutality towards women are like a major theme and that's also been carried over from uh, from classic noirs except I think it's even it's actually even harsher and sadder here. Um, and uh, I'd be really curious to get uh, Diao Yinin's take on like on misogyny and things like that in Chinese society, because he certainly seems to present it as being incredibly prevalent here. Well, how do we how do we talk about that without like spoiling the movie? Well, we, we can we, we, we can we can take a break and maybe get into spoilers in the second half. OK, before we take a break, I just want to go back to the cinematography once again, because this movie is gorgeous and like. We've already mentioned how it has the look and feel of a classic film noir, and that includes the staging, the camera shots, the angles, maybe not so much angles that there's not a lot of Dutch angles, but I like the mix of the classic film noir look with the glossy candy colored neon backdrop in terms of neon, in terms of like the lighting, the filters, the gels, but also the colors shown on set. But then you get the contrast with the outdoor scenes because most of the film takes place in the dead of winter. And, you know, for example, the setting of the, of the ice rink, it's it's just got a beautiful contrast and it's got these unusual settings for movies. Like when's the last time an ice rink was a place that became like a crucial set for the plot of a film? I can't think of any. Yeah. And not I like mean, a nice, happened... not like a nice hockey rink. Like I uh, mean, like a, a, putting a, aside King Kong, rink. the remake, when he goes ice skating in Central Park. But like, you know. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, when's the last time you saw an, uh, an ice rink in a movie? Yeah. You, you have scenes at ice rinks that are brief. You never have the ice rink be a recurring. Yeah, location. it's like a major, it's a major stage for major events in this film. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not sure w- what colors signify in Chinese culture, but you know, like, in American culture, like, when you watch a, like a show like Breaking Bad, like, every every color stands for a feeling, a notion, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whatever signifies something, right? But in this movie, he does play around with colors too. So, like for example, there could be two people in a car, and one person is lit with blue lighting, and the person next to that person, even though they're in the same car, is lit with red lighting. So, mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure what the colors would represent in Chinese culture, but it's got to mean something. 
Like, I don't, I think it's done purposely, like the way he lights everyone with specific colors. Mm -hmm. Or it could just be a horse in the middle of the apartment building. Or it could be, you're right, it could be. Because, because like, you know, when you think of Breaking Bad, right? Like, you know, the white means a specific thing. Yellow means a specific thing. They even have specific colors, which are supposed to warn the audience that something bad's going to happen to Walter. You know what I mean? So... In this film, I'm just wondering if it's the same thing, but I was watching the film and I need to rewatch the movie again because I couldn't I couldn't make out what the colors could possibly mean based on the colors he chose for the specific scenes. Because mm -hmm. like I, red in, in our culture would be warning, you know, uh, danger. danger. And I'm assuming or, it would yeah, be the same in Chinese maybe. culture, but I could be wrong. I didn't so much try to try to game out the individual colors so much as you, you notice that there's like the neon elements and there's the more naturalistic elements. Like there's a lot of the film has no ne like, I don't know. It seems to be sort of evenly divided between sort of more natural visuals and the, and the more stylized uh, garish neon. Um, and I feel like that's part of like the movies, his general approach of balance of duality. And he's even talked about how, the original Chinese, uh, the original title is like translates to daytime fireworks, which of course goes back to the uh, is a, a, a key location by that name. And of course, it connects to the ending because there's fireworks involved. Um, and he was saying that the, the 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 translated title of black hole and thin ice versus the original title of daytime fireworks. It, there's like a yin and yang element where it's like presenting the fantastical and the and the earthbound. And I think that uh, that's what I took from all the neon is like it's sort of pulling you in this more fantastical direction. But meanwhile, everything is quite uh, actually quite dingy. Yeah, I, it could also just sort of be how the case is going to get solved. The detective has to take his sort of trip, you know, into the fantastical zone in order to actually solve this case versus just hanging out in the more humdrum, you know, normal aspects of society like the uh, the the dry cleaning shop is a major location, mm -hmm. but he never in, in a typical movie, if you were going to have a dry cleaning shop be such a central hub, you would show all aspects of it. Right. But he never takes us behind the counter. Really. It's just the counter over and over and over. So it is just the ordinary. He still doesn't let us know like what's going on. Behind oh, the scene. we do go like, behind the counter once and it's when her boss is groping her. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah yeah um there's a, there's a lot of groping in this movie uh, yes there is <laughs> uh if, if you're upset by depictions of of uh of sexual assault or coercion in general i would avoid this one because there's a fair amount of it yeah yeah which is see i don't know if that's completely in line with classic noir or not classic noir women are treated a little yes they're violent things happen but they're they're also perpetrators of violence. Like women in, in classic noir, I guess, are either they're they're either pure evil or they're saintly. Although there's some in between ones as well. There's there's great little asides. You know, the big sleep has that moment with the librarian or the bookstore owner. Like that that has nothing to do with the rest of the movie, but it does show different attitudes towards their female characters. Um, so I don't know if this is completely, its treatment of women is completely lying. This might be more of a cultural thing. I'm not sure, or a statement on the culture. Um, but you do realize that the femme fatale in this movie actually does kill someone, right? So I get what you're saying, but she's still a Well, killer. I mean... I, I don't see her as a femme fatale, uh, I guess. Well, we'll I'm, I'm using those words loosely. This. I'm just saying the character was stand-in for the femme, the femme fatale in a classic film noir, which would be her character. She yeah. is a killer. Like, she has her reasons for, for killing the men. But she, we do find out at the end of the film well, that she's one is man. Killer. One well, man. Well, yeah, well, that we know of. 
Yeah, <laughs> I, I would say that the the difference is with a femme fatale, they are the they're lure, luring people in, right? Like they're they're scheming usually. They're not just uh, victims of certain. Like I, this this woman in. Again, we can get into spoilers later on, but I wouldn't put her in that category. She's definitely a victim of circumstance. Yeah, right. I, I wouldn't put her in the whole, like, I'm bringing trouble to me. <laughs> trouble more finds her. Yeah, she's just a very unfortunate person. Yes. <laughs> uh, maybe we should take that break, though, so that we can yeah. get into some spoilers and, and free up our conversation just a little bit. Uh, we will be back in a second, but here's another clip from Black Hole Thin Ice. Arakana, Shubara. Take all right, that was another clip from Black Hole Thin Ice. Uh, we're, so we've reached a segment of the podcast where we ask our five questions. I think we also, we're also going to dive into spoilers here first. So if you are going to see the film or are worried about spoilers, um, I hate to say shut up. Other us than up. the ones we already gave. Yeah, exactly. You might want to shut it down uh, in case we get into really spoiling the ending. Um, all right, so... <laughs> We're going to go right off the bat with, I, I imagine this will be a little bit more of a free-flowing thing so that we can get into spoilers, but Simon, why don't you kick us off with your favorite scene from Black Hole the Nice? <sighs> My favorite scene. You know what? I didn't even think about this uh, prior to doing this pod, which I normally do. Um, My favorite scene... Um. <sighs> You did choose this movie. Come on. I know. I know. There's a lot of good scenes. There are a lot of good okay, scenes. Let, let me jump in while you think about it. Yeah. You My favorite scene is the scene in which the main character, the detective, he returns to a dance hall. It's a dance hall that I think is located at, uh, within the ice skating rink, right? Or next to it. And so he returns to the dance hall and there's music playing. There's very few people, if anybody, on the dance floor. And he makes his way onto the empty dance floor. And he just starts dancing. But the way he starts dancing, it doesn't match to the actual rhythm of the music, nor does it match to the way anyone danced to the music in the prior scene. Because remember, we see this earlier on when he's chasing the killer. So he first goes to this dance hall in an earlier scene when he's chasing a killer or following the killer, he returns to it at the end of the at the end of the movie. And the reason why I love that scene so much is because for me, it's a signal of a release of his emotions and also maybe us, the viewers, because he's so complicated, he's so complex and confused and frustrated, and he's feeling so many different things. And this happens after he um, turns over Wu. I don't know what you would call her, like the lady, like the, <laughs> the, the, the love interest, femme the love fatale, interest. However, yes, he falls in sort of in love with her, I guess you can say, but yet he turns her over to the cops. And so this is the scene that follows that. And I just love the release of his emotions in that scene. Um, you know, I'm going to go actually with uh, a scene that we discussed uh, off mic earlier, which is more or less the next scene, um, because 
and I think this is a, a great example of what he's up to. He gets this big release, which, by the way, uh, everyone who's reviewed this film has compared it to Beau Travail. Oh uh, my God! Yes, the dance scene. It has it totally, totally the same energy. But what I find super interesting. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! What that might explain why I like that scene so much. That is yeah. one of my favorite movies of all time. I didn't even catch that mm. that that similarity. He's a hundred. It's a hundred percent a reference. Like there's no way wow. he doesn't know that. Um. Anyway. By, by the way, Patrick, have you seen Beau Travail? I have not. No. Oh, okay. 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 Because well, it all makes sense now. It all makes yeah. sense. By the way. The scene you're going to mention was the scene I told you that I could not stop laughing while watching. Yeah, and I and uh, on on revisit, uh, I felt the same way. Um, so he gets this big moment of release, and it's nice for him. <laughs> but unfortunately, Wu, our poor beleaguered uh, femme fatale, has to put up with being paraded by seemingly every cop in the province, uh, and a into, cameraman, uh, and a camera, and a cameraman uh, into. Um, a house that is currently occupied, yeah, the, a house where, where her murder, the murder she committed took place, which now has new occupants who are like strangely jazzed to see cops there. <laughs> I could not stop laughing. Yeah. I didn't understand because the, when the lady answers the door, she's suspicious of them, right? When the man comes to the door, when, the, when her husband comes to the door, he's like, oh, my God, the police come in but without the- knowing why they are there. You know, doesn't even ask, like, what are you looking for? You know, why do you want to visit our house? Just lets them in. But it's not like one cop or two cops. It's like 12 it's like cops. 12 cops and a cameraman. And a cameraman. I have so many questions about this scene because this is I, I like this one as well. But I, it was so strange. That's why. I was like, does this happen? Apparently, is this part yes. of the justice system where they're required to, like, go point at this is the place where I killed this person? <laughs> I mean, to be honest, it, it makes a lot of sense. Like, it's. Like the, the the equivalent of what of what they're doing here would be like four different procedures, uh, in in like in I don't know in like a Canadian court of law, and here it's just like no, let's get let's get like the hearing. She already confessed. Let's point. Let's have her pointed out. Let's get it on video. Let's do this all in one go. Maybe Doesn't we'll film the sentencing at the end. It seems a little menacing to me, like a little coerced, because at one point they actually give her direction. Right? Yeah. No point. Point higher. Point at this point, like. If you're confessing, that should be your, like, I guess, again, total cultural differences here. Yeah. But to me, I was like, holy smokes, like, they're actually telling her to confess. This is a co- coerced confession, and it, it almost seems like. It has well, no, that, that, that's, not, that's what it is. That's what yeah. it is. That's the point he's trying to make, the director. Um, but that that's, that. see, that that's the thing. Like, when the cops do show up in your house in China, from what I've seen, actual footage of, of what I read of, yeah, you're going to let them in. Like, you have no choice, right? They don't oh, need a course. warrant, right? So, yeah, yeah. but what I found funny was the reactions of the people who still live there, like the current occupants, because they were, they just seemed overjoyed by the fact that the police were visiting them. But also uh, they're, until they're, they point to them until she's just pointing at the murder spot and then they're sitting on the couch and they're just kind of like, Oh yeah. And I, I, I love that. <laughs> like they invite them in. They're so excited, but at the end they just seem kind of bored. Like they're just like, they're just like, okay, like, can we, can you get out of our house now? <laughs> <laughs> they're just forced to sit there. and the other reason there's so much going on in the scene the other thing about that sequence is her performance she's so just defeated and like ghost-like actually through a lot of this movie but especially at the end and i love the the, the contrast between his exaltation 
his like big moment of of emotional release and then her just sheer defeat is just really I know but that that's why that is still my favorite scene like I think the scene that you chose I think is the funniest scene but that's why the dance sequence is my Mm. favorite scene the way it contrasts her and what she has to go through in the following scene but it's just like it's the first time i really see that character let loose and actually seem like he's having fun and enjoying life and he feels like he's actually got a bit of life in him yeah good yeah, for him i'm not really sure what his motivation or in life is like what he's trying to hope to achieve it the movie starts out like we're introduced to him in a in a fairly like sleazy way where he's basically not like hanging out with his ex-wife but then when he tries to force himself on at the train station like okay like what is this guy's makeup what is what is his character i could never get a great bead on him um and i couldn't get a great i think this is one of those movies i couldn't get a great bead on most things in the movie um even most people in the movie which can be both good and bad for a movie like this when you're trying to pay attention to the plot but um Mm -hmm. It is. It's funny, R- Ricky, you keep mentioning a second viewing. I, I would recommend anyone who's seen this movie once and is kind of lukewarm on it to watch it a second time because I, it is quite plotty. Uh, there's a lot of there's you even had a question for me off mic about like a, a specific plot element. Um, and uh, one uh, on a second viewing, when you kind of already know the plot, um, it's uh, you, you, you kind of do get a little bit more of just the aesthetic. And you do, I, I felt like I understood the characters a little better on second viewing. Well, I watched the first 20 minutes over again this morning since we delayed our podcast for a bit. And I really like the movie a lot better just from watching the first 20 minutes on the second viewing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wu is the one character I think that that everybody can get because yes. you, you can understand how she's sort of like she's she's just a tragic figure in many ways. The stuff just comes for her. Trouble just mm-hmm. comes for her and she can never get away from it. And she tries to warn people away, but they keep coming anyway. Um. And so she almost seems like she's predestined to fail and she knows it. She's accepted it. It's her lot in life at this point, which is awful. But what are you going to do? And that's why at the end, when they're going through there, like, you're right, she looks defeated. But she also looks like she knew this was coming. It, she also it, it looks relieved, eventual. too, though. She looks relieved, like it's all over with. Been, yeah, she wasn't trying to... She never had the sense that she was trying to get away with stuff in the end, like mm. that she had these big plans and she was going to go live her life. It almost seemed like it was just a ticking clock and she was mm-hmm. just waiting for it to run out and, and it just ran out. That fatalism, by the way, very noir, extremely yes. noir. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. So if there was one thing you could change then, Simon, what would it be? Oh, one thing I could change. Uh Chinese censors let those scenes go that's what I'd change uh they apparently so according to the Wikipedia entry there are three minutes and 40 seconds cut from the Chinese release um and pr- the primary sources of uh, of excision were the um as I understand it the uh the sex scene on the Ferris wheel which is a very striking scene to lose by the way uh and apparently the um the fireworks at the end were cut uh, so that's I imagine that's probably most of the cut to be honest. That's like a solid two minutes of fireworks. Yeah, it is, and they're they're shooting fireworks at the police officers and at the you know, I mean they're basically it's some some troublemakers. Maybe they yeah. didn't want to show some rap scallions. <laughs> yeah, it's it's true they're pr- promoting antisocial behavior. It might not be considered cool, but it's murder is an fine. Impressive scene. They're shooting those fireworks at people like that's actually happening on camera, which is yeah. Uh, there's no CG. It's it's pretty no. sick. 
yeah, I was. There's a lot of fireworks too. So many fireworks. Yeah, definitely. Um, Rick, what about you? If there's one thing you could change, this might be an unfair, not criticism, but you're asking me for something I would change. It's not something I would change. More so, something I would add for Western audiences. And call me crazy, call me stupid, but you see this in a lot of American films too. When you have a lot of characters introduced, there's sort of like a little title card that explains who they are. Because I kind of felt a little lost at times with trying to figure out who's who in this movie. In the beginning. That's exactly what I was going to pick, right? Because at the beginning, there are four cops, and they're interviewing at different locations, and it looks like they're paired off in twos. Stop me if I'm wrong here, Simon, since you've seen it twice. That, that sounds correct. But it, it took me a while to catch up as to like who is who. I did not understand what the relationship these people were. I'm not saying voiceover or narration because I hate that shit. I'm talking about just a simple title drop because like you just asked earlier, like what is his current occupation? I'm not entirely sure. Is he a security officer? Is he a bodyguard? Is, does he work for the, the police on the side? Is he an actual, like, like I know we know he's an ex-cop, but I'm just, I found little things confusing, like who's who and what the relation is to like the central character or mm-hmm. characters. That's fair. And I also took it that he wasn't so much disgraced as he was like that he had a mental breakdown or something. Yeah, like, that's that's, dis- that's disgraceful. You should you should have a good enough brain to just keep doing your job after you after <laughs> you shoot a bunch of people. Because his partner, so the the I rented this on Amazon. The Amazon description is completely wrong because it says like two former cops who uh, who you know who who blew a case years ago get a chance to to make amends. I'm like, wait a second. The other guy went well, on and got promoted. Like, yeah, this guy not a former cop at all. Yeah, exactly. So it really is just this one guy. They're both involved in the same incident and. I feel like it was it wasn't like he was fired or or sent home in shame because of the way that everything turned out. It's more like that his own mental problems got in the way. No. And he, Although he, it is clear whether or not he's been disgraced that everyone does think he's a fucking loser. Yes. Yes. Well, he is. A, he's a super drunk, too. Like, <laughs> like the dude shows up hung over to work every single day, as his boss says, like he, he he's got problems. <laughs> He smokes like a chimney, which is cool, but... (laughs) Yeah, smoking is cool. We all know this. Especially if you're a noir cop, you have to. But yeah, he's he's a booze hound, and uh, he's got problems. Obviously, we see he's got problems right at the way the beginning. So the the whole situation with his ex-wife tells you that he's a little unbalanced, that he's got issues regardless of whether whatever happened on that case. I want to really quickly mention my favorite thing about that opening with the with the ex-wife is the way they play cards before they fuck is really is a very specific choice. (laughs) Really strange, specific choice. Very interesting. I had no idea what was going on at that point. But yeah, Rick, I'm kind of with you. So for the first at least 10 or 15 minutes, maybe, you know, maybe longer until the until the shootout. I really didn't understand who everybody's place in the movie was. I'm pretty sure Mindhunter does it, right? Refresh my memory, don't yeah, they? Yeah, I think they do. Title cards to explain who's who. Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah. Are you looking Anyways. at Mindhunter right now? <laughs> uh, all right, so that brings us to MVP, though. Simon, who's your MVP of this film? Ah, oh, crap. Who's the DP? I have to find him. Really? Um, That's your MVP. I think maybe Jing Song Dong. Uh, that's, yeah, that's his name. Let's let's go with that. 
because uh, I think uh, no, really, I mean the the look of the film is so much of it. Like I, which is a strange thing to say because we've had so much to say about the plot, but um, a lot of the movie exists in that sort of dead space between the plot elements and you know capturing all that neon and the uh, and the and the snow coming down in the sort of like yellowish light over the uh, over the ice rink and stuff like that. So yeah, I'll go with the DP. I mean, how do you get a camera on a Ferris wheel while two people are having sex and not tip over? Mm. <laughs> That's a big dude. That's a big deal. <laughs> I think I'm going to agree. I think the cinematography is a standout. And I think the cinematographer has to be the MVP because like, I, I think the reason why I just, I'm lukewarm on the movie is because of the characters like as fascinating as they are at times. They're also boring and I don't know much about them and I find their actions repetitive. And so that's the thing about the movie. Like I, I like the movie. I'm not in love with the movie. I need to see it a second time, but walking away after watching the movie last night, the, the one thing that I kept, I could not stop thinking about was the cinematography. Like, I'm looking at it right now, like I'm playing the movie in the background, and it just looks gorgeous. It's tough for me to, to say how much is the cinematographer, who obviously did a great job lighting everything. But it for me, I think it's the style when it comes to the look of the movie gets me more than maybe the actual photography. Uh, I like the choice of static camera shots. I'm a big I love static camera shots in movies. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little sick of handheld camera. And so anytime somebody sets it down and just lets it, just takes a picture, I, that's why I love that shootout. I love how that's staged. Um, yeah, that I, it's hard for me to tell whether that's that's what I like about it more or whether or not the, the cinematographer, the cinematography was actually the... I, I kind of feel like there. I need to choose the Wild Goose Lake in a future episode to review because I do think it's a better movie. And I, I, I would say, Simon, you need to watch that movie a second time. Maybe also. I do. Maybe I do. Well, also, there's something about the the specific like moral tenor or something of, of this movie that I vibe with specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, but and maybe that uh, that uh, squelched my thinking. I, sh- I should just mention that it's it's pretty much like the same crew. Like he yeah. uses the same editor, the same cinematographer. Yeah, it seems like it's the same crew. He he works with the Does same he use people. the same actors? Not the same actors, but no. he uses the same crew. I was going to say, my, my MVP is uh, Liao Fan as, as Zhang. Um, to me, he, he, he really holds this movie together. It's a mm-hmm. lot of nice shots and everything like that, but I needed somebody to attach to. And even though I can't relate to him very well. That's and like good news, said, Patrick. <laughs> like you said, Rick, his character could get a little bit tough to grasp. Like all the characters can, but I I enjoyed watching him, and I found watching him to be fascinating. Even when he's just having chats, I liked the way that he walked into the dry cleaner shop and would just lean against the counter, and he would just the way he would go about his business to me was uh, was fascinating. His his stakeout at the ice rink, just sort of watching all of his tactics. He was very quiet, very methodical. I didn't find him to be you know off the off the. He never flew off the handle really. Uh, he did some obviously mo- very morally questionable things but i even found that to be weird because this is supposed to be sort of your 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 protagonist mm-hmm. um so injecting that kind of stuff into it makes for an interesting mix i like when there are morally flawed people at the center of things which is what why i like noir so much um and this 
which is why this also fits right into it. So I did, I, I really liked his performance. I think he nailed it. He never went over the top. He, he kept everything very subdued and he, he kept everything very natural to mm-hmm. give you a, a, an entry point into this weird story. Uh, shout out to, to Gwaylon May who plays Wu. Um, it's a really, it's a really difficult role. And um, I think that she was, she's probably some, uh, I think she, I think her sheer like quietness and stillness might alienate some people, but I really appreciated the way that when she finally, th- there's like a point uh, around, around the three quarter marker later where she finally does actually like demonstrably like showcase her upsetness or her, her emotion. And it's so striking because she's, uh, she's, uh, ra- she's so tightly wound so much before that. Uh, that it's uh it's it's almost like a special effect. Mm-hmm. She seems like she's just uh, a zombie practically through. She's through just done. She's so over existence. Yeah, for she's so already, much of the movie, already dead and just happens to be walking around. But every once in a while, she will show a spark of life, and it it is quite striking mm-hmm. as a result. All right, so uh, the Howard Hawks. Everyone's favorite question: Howard Hawks test. Three great scenes, no bad ones. Does this movie hold up as a great movie by those standards? I don't think it has any bad scenes. I don't know. It's not really. I'm going to go. I'm going to go with the uh, my my usual cop out of uh, this is not a scene oriented film. It's not. I also uh, (laughs) it's hard to point to anything that would be iconic in this. Something that everybody's going to walk away from and they're going to say, I'm going to remember that forever. Or when they see a shot from it, that they'll instantly know, like, yeah, I remember that. That's this movie. That's this scene. Um, so I'm not sure that it holds up under the, it all depends on how, of course, how you define great scenes, but there are no bad ones. I can't think of a bad scene under Rick. What about you? No, I think the one scene that people always refer to, uh, or remember the one scene that will stand out, the one scene that might be iconic is the barbershop scene, mm-hmm. but I'm going to say no. Wild Goose Lake does have an iconic scene, and I can I can bring it to mind right now. Yeah, yeah, I think it actually has two, if not three, great scenes. <laughs> well, if there's no, if there's nothing iconic here, do you see this movie? Like, who's the audience for this movie? Do you oh. see this movie catching on? Do you see the people watching this movie? This movie finding an American, a Western audience, I should say, not an American audience, but. I, I think I, I live in America. Everybody, <laughs> there's always uh, there's always a Western audience for uh, for Asian film. There's always an audience for noir. Um, there's always an audience for people who are curious about um, like other places and want to know about how life works there. Um, sh- and also, just um, I want to give a quick shout out to uh, Jonah Jang who wrote about this film in Reverse Shot. Something that that he noticed uh, where. The, the entire original conflict of the movie springs from this sort of like coercive sexual arrangement that uh, Wu has to put up with and then decides not to. Um, and uh, he points out that, you know, this you could see that as a uh, as a representation of like market forces coming into China uh, and sort of influencing events in certain ways. Uh, in perhaps certain not so savory ways, and where where you know relationships are becoming more transactional, and bad things happen as a result, um, and that's a whole angle that I wouldn't have even thought of. So I'm sure that people will. It's the, it's exactly the kind of movie that people will keep uh, watching and and writing about and finding new angles on. But uh, I don't think any of us is qualified to comment on that. Um, 
anyway, I'm merely saying it is something that I think people will will find interesting in a variety of ways. But I don't think it will appeal to um, uh, pe- you know, it, people who need a, a strict procedural, like we were saying, or like a, a certainly not people who are looking for a wham bang action film, because this is very much an art house film. Um, no, it definitely is not an action movie. I, I would say if you're looking for just a straight up detective movie, it's going to it might not be fulfilling for you if that's what if your goal is to see a crime get solved i just don't think that that's not really what this movie's about it it happens and like you said there are there is evidence there's there's plot twists there's turns he's there are clues and he tracks down suspects and all the the elements of a detector procedural are here but it's not really the focus of the movie and i i have a feeling those people will not quite get what they want out of it no Although to be fair, I mean, shout shout out to to, to Diao Yinin because I I do think that the mystery of the film and the actual crime and the details and the way we find out every single aspect of of everything that went down is actually very well constructed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I think upon second viewing, I will you know I'll see a lot of things that I would have had no no context for before, and that's always the mark of a good procedural as well, right? You can spot mm-hmm. the clues. But yeah, again, I, it doesn't. It doesn't ever. It never felt like that was the focus. Solving the mystery to me never felt like the true focus. It was getting to the the heart of the characters of the matter. That, it, that seemed. It's just about getting down to dancing. Yeah, exactly. that's what it is. And, and getting it on uncomfortably and awkwardly. Um, <laughs> what, what about you, Rick? Do you kind of what's your take on that? Do you think that this movie has an audience out there? Every movie has an audience, but. I think you have to really be in the right mind frame and the right mood and understand that this is more of a mood piece and an art film than it mm-hmm. is a crime film. Yes, it's heavily inspired by classic film noir, but it's straight up a f- international art house film from China that moves slow. And the movie isn't interested in the central plot. It isn't interested in the whodunit or why someone killed wh- whoever. It's not interested in the actual murder. It's more interested in the characters, these two characters. But that said, the two characters, we're not, we're not given much about the characters. Like, we don't know much about the characters. So it's like the mystery here is really the characters. It's, it's like you said, Patrick, is trying to figure out this dude, the, the, the central uh, protagonist of the film, the cop and her, the girl, who, right? That's the mystery. So it's really a character piece, I think. But I, I do think it has a huge audience uh, there's a lot of people that seem to love art house films and films like this um and anyone looking for some great cinematography this is one of those films where you know hopefully movie theaters recover from everything they stick around because this is an art house theater movie that i think a lot more people would discover if it was playing in public as opposed to discovering it somewhere else like it's hard to discover this movie i guess you you had it on shutter for a little while you guys did anyway yeah um you know, and I, I was able to rent it on Amazon, but I have to search for it. It's not like this is going to pop up. What's so... weird is Wild Goose Lake, which is his 2019 film that won a bunch of awards, it is available to stream on, on the internet with on like sites like, you know, where you get ads popping up left and right, but whatever. Like, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about legal sites. We're not yeah. legal sites, right? Um, but it's available everywhere. This movie is harder to track down. I had to rent it on Google Play, I believe. Um. The last the last group of people who I, I should specify should see this movie is anyone with like an even passing interest in like contemporary China, which, by the way, you should have an interest in China. 
it's it you should be interested in other places if you're not what's wrong with you <laughs> well and that's part of what makes movies so great too is you get to see things you've never seen before yeah um, and by the way i'm a huge fan of films from china so i'm actually kind of surprised i don't like this movie as much as i thought i would you know what we'll we'll do more um we'll do ash's purest white soon you're gonna love that movie all right with that we should probably wrap things up then uh simon are you still offline as i am yep <laughs> Bye. We'll, we'll keep that short and sweet uh rick where can people find you and where can they find the podcast you can find the podcast over at sortedcinema.com and the twitter handle sorted cinema the podcast is available to listen to everywhere from youtube to amazon to itunes to you name it uh sortedcinema.com leave us a rating on itunes if you like the show send us an email if you like the show tweet at us if you like the show all the information is over at sortedcinema.com and if you hate the show, kiss my ass. <laughs> we don't want to hear it. And Rick, do we know what your choice is going to be for next week? Have you? I, I have like five down. movies I want to review, and I wish I we know. could do all five next week. I'm I'm thinking maybe the original Mortal Kombat from 1995, which is a masterpiece. It's not Oof. really, but it's a good movie. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking about Fried Berry because I want to I, just because I I would pay I would actually pay just to hear Patrick's reactions. And thought in that movie i think it would be worth the price of admission 20 bucks and uh i'm also thinking about memories of murder but I'm not sure all right well we'll keep it a mystery for now there's also come uh, true come true is another interesting film that just got released i would i, I i've i was apprehensive i was apprehensive about doing come true at first but now i think i'd like to do it okay well you pick it then all right well regardless of what it is we'll see you back here next week Yeah.